Thanks, Emily, for that announcement. It's good to see you folks here. And uh, this morning, just one other announcement. You may have seen the email I sent out that said today we're going to try a sermon follow-up class, not here in person, but online. It's at 11.30, so that hopefully gives you enough time to chat a little bit and run home and get on there. Got about a dozen people signed up so far, but uh, if you still decide you want to do it, you're not signed up, you can go back to that note from Laura and find a link and register and you'll be all set. So today, I want to talk about the God who mends the world as we uh, get closer to the end of our series on the God who is here. Uh, I know it's a little bit like the coming of Jesus, you know. Uh, you're not sure just when the end is going to come, but you know that each Sunday gets you closer to that point. And that's kind of the way this series has been, but there just seems to be more and more that can be said on this topic. So uh, you'll be encouraged that we're in Revelation 21, so we're almost at the end of the Bible. How much longer can he go on? Uh, well, actually, we can go on for quite a while yet. Uh, here is a... Uh, a diagram that I came onto recently that has, has really been intriguing to me. It was done by Chris Harrison and Christoph Rumhild, and uh, it is a diagram of the interconnectedness of the Bible. Now, I'm, I'm sorry it doesn't project quite as well as I'd like. If you go online, you can find it pretty easily. Uh, go to Google Images and uh, do a hyperlinked Bible or something like that, and you'll pretty quickly find it. Uh, it has almost a, a rainbow appearance. What these guys did was they, they took, uh, I don't think they did it themselves, I think they got some kind of data on the, on the interconnectedness of Scripture, uh, the idea of cross-references, you know, if you have a Bible with a column down the center of the page and it links you back. Well, they worked with data that said there are over 63,000 such cross-references in Scripture. So they said, all right, let's get a visual look at that. And uh, they developed this graph. Now, uh, here along the bottom, in alternating gray and white, are all 66 books of the Bible. And then the vertical lines represent every chapter in those 66 books. And the length of the line down is indicative of the number of verses in the chapter. So you see the longest one is right here, that's Psalm 119. So they've got all the chapters represented there, and then they draw a line from any cross-reference to its preceding place, right? The preceding verse. And depending on how long the arc is, they use different colors, which gives a kind of rainbow effect. It's quite beautiful, but beyond the beauty, what has struck me here is the way it conveys that 
Scripture is an ongoing story that grows out of an ongoing conversation. Now, see, when I went to seminary and we talked about the unity of the Bible, the strange unity of these, these works that are written over hundreds of years by different people and, and how there is a coherence between them, we always just kind of defaulted to the theological explanation and said, well, the Holy Spirit is the one who guides the writers, and that, that gives this overarching unity. And I, I, I think that's fine and true, but this is another perspective on that unity, isn't it? It's that as the story unfolds of people's experience with the one living and true God, and they begin to write about it, the people who come after read what they wrote, and they engage in this conversation that goes over centuries, and this is the kind of pattern you get. So I, I've really been intrigued to, to think about that image. Now you say, what does that have to do with Revelation 21? Well, what it has to do with it is that if you go to the end here and you can see it in a, a higher resolution or greater clarity, you find that there are all kinds of arcs that come out of the book of Revelation going back all the way to the very beginning. So John, as he brings us to a conclusion, probably the oldest living writer who wrote as part of the canon, near the end of his life, creates this extraordinary book, this book of visions of the end and of the future. But he does so in an ongoing conversation with everybody who went before him. So, as I read Revelation 21, uh, I want to help you to see some of those arcs. And what I've done then is I've gone through the text and I've picked out not all of the connections, but I picked out some of the connections, and I've highlighted them in different colors. The white, I'm going to take it, is, is John's contribution. The yellow represents an allusion or a quotation. For example, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's a quotation right out of Isaiah 65. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. That's back to Genesis chapter 1. And so you'll see the alternation of the yellow and the green, which just signals to you John is in conversation, right? So I want to be thinking about that today. So let me read this chapter for us and then we'll talk about it for a bit. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. What a strange statement. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them 
and be their God. He will wipe away uh, every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the twelve gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long, a cube. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, 
but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, there's a whole lot here, and uh, some of it we will not be able to talk about, but maybe get to some of those other uh, issues in our sermon follow-up class. So John brings us to the end of the story. And as we've already mentioned, the end is connected to the beginning. It's, uh, it's not like this strange book of Revelation just sits out there lonely uh, as a kind of disconnected piece. It's all interwoven from the story. All of the story bits come together in the end. And, uh, and John, of course, doesn't deal, can't deal with every part of it, but he pulls a number of major themes that we can uh, call to our mind, and he does so in picture language. You know, the, the scholars call the book of Revelation uh, a literary style called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is the idea of unveiling or opening up the secrets of history. And, and if you look at the Old Testament, you look at some of the intertestament material that's not part of our Bible, this was a pretty common way of writing among the Jewish people. And uh, there's lots of symbols. There's lots of uh, metaphors. There's lots of strange visions, right, with monsters that come out of the sea and all the rest. It's, uh, it's, it's quite a, it's almost like you're watching a, a fantasy movie with one scene bombarding you right after the next. And so John paints a number of scenes for us, and uh, much of the time they're talking about the similar reality, which is the end, right? But uh, you pick up on a couple of them here, and they just come at you, boom, 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 in the, in the chapter we read. So he says, right off, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And as I pointed out already, that goes back to different parts of the Old Testament story. It goes back to the, the visions of Isaiah the prophet, where God says, I I'm doing a new thing. I'm going to create uh, new heavens and new earth. It's straight quotation. Uh, but along with that, there's this suggestion of all the way back to the beginning, and we'll talk about that uh, just a little bit more in a minute. So there's the new heavens and the new earth, and then immediately he sees a new heavens and a new earth, and the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it's, it's one piled right on the next one. So this city, New Jerusalem, and that obviously connects back to the old Jerusalem, right? That's, a, that's an image that runs through as early as Genesis chapter 14. The Abraham and Melchizedek story, Right? Melchizedek is priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And, uh, and then it becomes the capital of David's united empire, the capital city. 
And Solomon will build the temple there. So there's all these important images of the heritage of, of the Israelites and their worship of God and all the rest. Well, now at the end of the story, there is a new Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven, and it's filled again with these strange images, which in various ways speaks of the, the glory and the wonder and the goodness of the new Jerusalem. But they're strange, right? They have, the city has gates made out of pearls taken from an oyster you don't want to meet. This massive whole city gate is a pearl. And, uh, and then there's all the symbolism of the twelves. There's twelve gates. And there's 12 foundations, which are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and we're pulling all these images from the past. And then the, the city is not just laid out in a square. It's laid out as a cube. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a... A tweak there John's given us. A little bit of a puzzle, right? Where in the Old Testament is there a cube? I think there's only one. You want me to tell you what that is, right? No, 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 no. no you either come to the sermon follow-up class or, uh, or this afternoon read the Old Testament and... Find out where the cube is, because it's important here. But the city comes down as a cube. And then immediately we morph from the city to a wedding scene. The city comes down arrayed as a bride about to get married. So the city's a bride, which tells us that, that the city is... One of the metaphors for the people of God, huh? And that's the 12, 12, 12. And Israel and the church are together in that reality. Twelve gates of the city, twelve foundation stones. There's one people of God, but the one people of God now arrive in the vision as a bride decked out to get married. And, and this goes along with something John said to or he heard an angel say two chapters before, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so it's back again here. The bride is coming. They're about ready to enter into the marriage feast. And then John hears a voice from the throne saying, this vision is trustworthy and true. And that's so important, isn't it? Uh, not just for us, but think about, think about the people to whom John is writing. They are people facing difficult opposition from the most powerful empire of that day, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has been described earlier under, under more figures earlier in this book as Babylon, with all of that imagery going back to Genesis chapter 11. 
Babylon, the arrogant opponent of God and his purposes, now becomes a title for Rome, the empire presently in control, the empire that has sent John into exile where he writes this letter. The empire that sees to the death of most of the rest of the twelve apostles, if not all of them. The empire that sporadically opposes the Christian church and persecutes its, uh, its citizens. They need this kind of a vision, don't they? John's near the end of his life, but he's not giving up. He's, he's been in this story too long. The story that's unfolded as empires have arisen and fallen and arisen and fallen, but the story ends with the kingdom of God appearing in its fullness. And, and the voice from the throne says this vision is trustworthy and true. And it's still trustworthy and true today. It's something that you can and should build your life on, this orientation toward the future, toward what God is going to do as he brings the story of human history and its interaction with the one living and true God as he brings that to its conclusion. It's trustworthy and true what John sees. But then note this. The end that John sees is also the beginning. The, uh, the, one of the words that the Greek Bible uses for end is, is a word that doesn't just mean end in the sense of finished and complete, but it means end also in the sense of goal or direction. And that's clearly the case in the way John writes about what he sees. The vision that he sees is not just the end of this centuries-long story, but it's the beginning of something new and fresh. So think a little bit about how he, he does this. He talks about the new creation, and as we see, it's not just a reference back to Isaiah, but it's a, a reference even further back to the very first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what does God do? Well, he creates, and as the pinnacle of his creation, he makes two human beings, made in his image and likeness, designed to be partners with him, in the ongoing work of creation and the bringing of holistic well-being, the biblical term is shalom. And they're to partner with God in that. We've talked about this at length before. But we're called back to it at the end of the story. God's original plan is fulfilled. His plan was to work with Adam and Eve and their descendants to tend to defend and to extend the garden. The problem is, of course, that Adam and Eve decided they wanted to write their own job description. And they did. And it caused lots of trouble. And so 
God then comes to the garden, which is next to Eden, where his palace is, and he comes walking to experience the beauty of the garden and to be with his creatures, and what do they do? They hide themselves because they're no longer on the same page. And so the story gets detoured. God's purposes get delayed because the enemy has been at work. But subsequently in Genesis, God calls this man Abraham, calls him to come and be his partner, to walk with him. And then he chooses Abraham's descendants after him, the Israelites. He saves them out of bondage in Egypt. He brings them to the promised land. And he says to them, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Adam and Eve didn't want to walk with God. (laughs) They were on a different wavelength. Initially, the people of Israel seemed to want to walk with God, but they quickly decided that the Canaanite gods were more fun. And so they lost that opportunity. But God's purpose continued to have a people to be their God, to walk with them. So, Listens to John's words in light of Leviticus 26, verse 3, chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. John's gone all the way back to Leviticus. And he's saying, look, we're coming to the end of this story for now, but in fact it's opening out in the future the reality of what God intended to do way back. All the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve and then with Israel. That is now what's going to happen. That is the new age that is before us. These words are trustworthy and true, says the voice from the throne. And all that could threaten the old world will not be part of the new. How about that interesting comment? I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and there was no longer any sea. What was the sea? It was right there in Genesis chapter 1, right in the beginning. Well, the the sea was the churning threat of chaos. That's what it was. God is pictured in the Old Testament in various places as putting limits on the sea so that it can't go any further (laughs) because it's dangerous. The, The Israelite people never felt very good about the sea. See, if you, if you look at the ancient maps, they were almost totally landlocked. 
They had a little access to the Mediterranean, but that was most, the seacoast was mostly the Philistines and the Phoenicians. Phoenicians were ocean-going people. The Israelites weren't. They, they wanted their feet on terra firma. Okay? So the sea was always a threat. We did our little study in Job a few weeks back, and remember, uh, remember the discussion of Leviathan, the sea monster? Uh, The sea monster, in some ways, represents the whole sea. It's the churning. It's the danger. It's the the threat of chaos springing up, uncontrolled, destroying. Well, in this beautiful image, there's a new heavens and a new earth. There's no longer any sea. There's no threat of chaos. Even in your own life, I mean, do you, do you feel the chaos? Do we feel it in, in our society? Do you, do you sense how thin the layer is in your life or in our culture between order and absolute chaos? I mean, think of it. This little bitty virus that you can't even see unaided, it has turned everything upside down. That's like the sea, right? That's like the chaos. And think of all the other ways that chaos threatens our lives and we, we do what? We put our trust in technology to protect us? Really? Well, in the uh, new heavens, new earth, that won't be a problem. There will be no sea. Later on, In the chapter, John tells us about the uh, city that comes down out of heaven, the New Jerusalem, and he says, at no time will the gates ever be shut. Actually, he says two things. He says, there's no night there, and the gates of the city are never shut. Now, those two go together because in the ancient world, the gates of the city are your protection. So you shut the city gates at night because you don't want the bad guys to sneak in. But in the New Jerusalem, there are 12 gates, but they're never shut. Why? Because there is no danger. God's original plan for a world marked by shalom, by comprehensive well-being, is really going to happen. That's what John is telling us. That's the future. And then he makes these references to Isaiah 65. I will create new heavens and new earth. That's the quotation that he starts the chapter with. And And Isaiah 65, 17 goes on to say, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. It's interesting to think about that they won't even be remembered. Now, my suspicion is that some things will be remembered. Healthy relationships, bonds with brothers and sisters, Blessings that we received through God's working in other people, God's God's work on our behalf, I think those things will be remembered. They belong as part of 
the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. But evil, evil is done away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Even the memory of them, I take it. I mean, some memories cause you to mourn and to weep. John says, no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. That that seems to me to exclude those memories which are destructive and painful and all the rest. The end is also the beginning. Well, next week I want to pursue some of these uh, images that John uses. You can read ahead in chapter 22 if you'd like and think about questions that you might have or uh, observations that would be valuable. I suppose as we uh, wrap it up today and get ready to take communion, we just ought to pause with this beautiful invitation where the one seated on the throne says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The invitation to those who are thirsty to come and drink. That's, uh, among others, that's Isaiah 55. And that's Jesus, isn't it? On the, on the day of tabernacles, celebration of tabernacles, where he talks about uh, the water of life which he will give to those who thirst. Those who thirst, who ask and who receive are also those who are victorious. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. Who are they? Well, they are the people that John is writing to, the people who in spite of opposition and persecution and even facing death say, we believe this message. We believe it so much that we are part of the story, the story of the suffering Messiah, and if need be, we will suffer with him and for him. And Jesus says they are the victorious ones, those who persevere in their faith right to the end, who don't get distracted no matter what comes. Well, where are you and I? These verses always come as the, as the check, huh? What's my faith in? What do I trust in? Am I a participant in this extraordinary story of the God, the living and true God who creates, who loses the world and gains it again, who takes the world in its brokenness and he mends its brokenness so that all things are made new, including you and me, made new in him. Let's pray, and then uh, Jack and Babs, I think, are going to lead us in communion. Lord, we're thankful for the encouragement we have from your word, uh, 
these glorious images that touch our hearts, that touch our imaginations, and leave us, what, uh, yearning to see the completion of your good purposes. Lord, may we all be encouraged this day. May we resolve with the help of your Spirit to live this week as people who believe this story, who are drinking of the waters of life that Jesus gives to all who ask, because we pray in his name. Amen. Some are here in the sanctuary and others online. We are a family of believers knit together by the Holy Spirit. Welcome to the Lord's table. Jesus hosted a Passover meal just before his crucifixion. He focused his followers' attention on the bread they ate and on the sharing of the third cup of wine called the cup of salvation. Jesus had taught them that he was the bread of life come down from heaven. He likened himself to the wilderness manna God provided so many centuries before. The annual Passover meal also recalled the unleavened bread eaten in haste and the lamb's sacrifice at the moment of exodus from Egyptian slavery. The blood was applied. The death angel passed over. Where applied, the firstborn did not die. They were saved into a new life centered in God himself. At the Passover, which we refer to as the Last Supper, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation and God's promised Messiah, transformed this traditionally practiced meal into a kingdom of God meal of thanksgiving. A new and greater salvation deliverance was unfolding. Jesus, the Lamb, God's Lamb, would willingly die in our place. And in his resurrection, God's plan of eternal deliverance would be more fully revealed. Not just deliverance from the evil of slavery's bondage, but from our deeper bondage to self-centeredness and its eternal penalty. Jesus was about to lay down his sinless life as the substitutionary atonement for your rebellion and mine. Sharing in this fellowship meal and calling to mind Jesus' sacrifice reminds us to daily praise Jesus and put our faith and confidence in him. For our sake, he died in our place and rose to new life. Paul spoke of it this way, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. He rules at the right hand of the Father. All believing followers of Jesus from any Christian tradition are invited to share in this sacred meal. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, 
we have peace with God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess and affirm our faith and trust in you. We want to live your way in your world. We desire to show your kind of love to those we meet each day. We dedicate and receive this bread and this cup as your gift. We share it together for your honor and glory. You are the Lamb of God. Amen. At this point, I invite you to take off your mask. And I also want to point out, if you're not familiar with it yet, the method by which you open <laughs> this little container. It could be exciting. There are two tabs, count them, one, two. The first one, which is very thin and clear, will access the bread. Then, after a moment or two, we'll open the cups to the next tab, which will open it for the juice. <clears throat> Holding your bread. For those at home, what you've prepared and provided. Of the bread, Jesus said, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. Our Father, we rejoice in your grace, given and received. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's work, even while we are at a distance from one another but always near you. Root us deeply in your love. Mend us. Mend us deeply in this new life. That with all your believing people, you may daily live in the fullness of new life in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Guide us in these days, and may we show all our neighbors your love and light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, folks, thanks for coming. I trust you'll have a good week. Hope to see you next week. Uh, if you're going to join us online, that's uh, in 45 minutes. And next week, oh, I'm sorry, next week is not Revelation 22. That's two weeks away because next week Seth is going to speak to us. Got my mind confused there. Okay, great to see you. Let me... 
send you off with uh, Aaron's blessing upon the tribes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.